Our scripture reading this evening comes to us from the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12 to 17, and then afterwards we'll read Lord's Day 11 from the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 12 of 1 Timothy 1. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then Lord's Day 11, which is on page 212 in the Forms and Prayers. Page 212 in the Forms and Prayers. Beginning in question 29. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? Because He saves us from our sins, and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Do those who look for their salvation and security in saints, in themselves, or elsewhere, really believe in the only Savior Jesus? No, although they boast of being His, By their actions they deny the only Savior, Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept this Savior have in Him all they need for their salvation. My most dear friends, the name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. Joshua would have been a name that was quite common in Israel at the time of Jesus' birth because of the two leading figures in the Old Testament who are named Joshua. Joshua, of course, the sixth book of the Bible, led Israel out of the wilderness into the promised land. And Joshua the high priest who led Israel back to Canaan after their Babylonian exile. The name Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, literally means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. And God did save through these men. 
If you read through the book of Joshua, there were many wars, many battles, and God did use Joshua to save many lives in Israel. But these men could only save in an earthly way. But if we read Deuteronomy 18, as Moses is preparing the people to enter into the promised land, he tells them that a greater prophet will arise from among the brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all I command him. There was to be a greater prophet than Moses. A greater king than David. A greater priest than Aaron. But as we consider the name Jesus, we know that the Joshua's of the Old Testament were not that greater priest. They couldn't deliver Israel from their sins. Just a few weeks ago, we were considering the advent, the birth of Jesus Christ, and God proclaims through the angel Gabriel that His name will be Jesus. Yahweh saves because He will save His people from their sins. It was the custom at the time uh, at that time where the Jews would actually name the child on the day of His circumcision. And names in the Bible uh, meant quite a bit. Oftentimes, an individual's name would parallel their personality. Uh, To illustrate this, uh, think of the Bible character Jacob, whose name means supplanter or deceiver. And we see that he lived up to that name. I hope I don't live up to that name as my name is Jacob. But the idea of when giving the name at the male's circumcision was that it should capture, the name should capture the essence of who that person was. Capture what their life would be about. This is seen most beautifully in the name of Jesus. His life will be about saving His people. His life will be about being that prophet of Deuteronomy 18. The King who will sit on David's throne forever. That priest who makes true atonement, real atonement, for the sins of the people. Unlike the first two Joshua's, who saved the body, this final Joshua, this final Jesus, will save His people from their sins. The Bible makes so much of His name. There is salvation in no one else, says Peter, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Acts 4, verse 12 What about this verse? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and under earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
There's something in that name. How sweet it is to the believer to hear that Yahweh saves through His Son. And so this evening, we want to begin to consider the Heidelberg Catechism's instruction concerning God the Son. We've covered in Lord's Day 10, or excuse me, 9 and 10, God the Father. And now in Lord's Days 11 through 19, we'll consider the subject of God the Son. And in the first three Lord's Days, that's 11, 12, and 13, we begin with considering the titles of Jesus Christ. We first look at His title of Savior in Lord's Day 11, and then Lord's Day 12, we look at His title of Christ, and then in Lord's Day 13, we look at His titles of Only Begotten and Lord. And the point of considering His titles before we even get to His person or His work is that the instructor wants to remind us why He came. Why Jesus is even worth studying. Because He is our Savior. He is our Savior. And He came to deliver us from all evil. Satan, sin, death, and hell. To deliver us from them all. That's our theme this morning. Jesus is called Savior because He delivers His people from all evil. Jesus is called Savior because He delivers His people from all evil. I want to show you this in three points this evening. First, the Gospel is for the needy. Second, deliverance by the Gospel And then third, the exclusiveness of the Gospel. That's the Gospel is for the needy, deliverance by the Gospel, and then the exclusiveness of the Gospel. First, let's look at how the Gospel is for the needy. This evening, Scripture meditation comes to us from the writings of the Apostle Paul to the young pastor Timothy, who if your Bible is still open, you see in 1 Timothy 1 verse 3 is stationed in... Ephesus. Timothy is Paul's protege. He offered a he excuse me occupied a special place in the heart of the apostle. Acts 16 tells us that Timothy joined Paul in his second missionary journey. And when Paul was the pastor of Ephesus as he is the founding pastor of that church, we read in Acts 19 that Timothy was present during Paul's planting and ministering in the Ephesian church. We learn later in the New Testament that John, for a time, serves the church in Ephesus. And then Timothy comes and is, if you will, called and installed as the third pastor of the church in Ephesus. One of my professors often reminded me when I was in seminary, he would remind the entire classroom, some of you will get a call to Jerusalem and others of you will get a call to Nineveh. Well, for Timothy, this was a call to Nineveh. He arrives at Ephesus, which would be a port city, was a port city of Asia Minor, a city 
famous for its pagan temple to the Greek goddess Artemis. It is considered the center of pagan worship in Asia Minor. And not only this, but as Timothy gets there and he's pastoring this congregation, we see that this church is rife and full of serious heretical teachings. Paul says, if you have a Bible, uh, 1 Timothy 1, he says in verse 4 that these are people who are caught up in myths and genealogies, verse 4. Vain spiritual discussions, verse 6. A misunderstanding of the law, verse 7. People teaching the prohibition of marriage and of certain foods. And a teaching, 2 Timothy 2, verses 17 and 18, that the resurrection had already taken place. This would be the call that your professors in seminary would tell you, don't take that church. In fact, if you flip with me to Revelation chapter 2, Jesus addresses the church in Ephesus, and He makes note of this, that it was plagued with many trials. I know your works, uh, 2 verse 2, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. This was a church being assailed by false doctrines Assailed by pagan philosophies. But then on top of it all, what does Jesus say in Revelation 2, verse 4? But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Their first love. Not only were they struggling with culture and false teaching, but they're struggling with sin. They're sinners. Paul likewise says in 1 Timothy 1, they're struggling with immorality in verses 19 through 20. They're struggling with deceptiveness in 4, 1 through 3, and greed in 6, 5. We don't have Timothy's first letter that we assume he sent to the Apostle Paul asking for help, but I think we know what it said. Help! What do I do with these people? You see, we have to imagine on one side you have the culture saying salvation is by worshiping the Greek gods. And on the other side, you have the church, false leaders in the church, teaching false doctrines, and Timothy is caught in the middle of it. With all that in mind, look at 1 Timothy 1, verse 3 with me. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Does that put it into context for you? A young pastor struggling in his first call. That's the context of this book. I don't know, this is speculation, but maybe he was considering abandoning his post. Maybe he was considering, to use our language, to take another call. 
or to put it in a worldly way, to get out of Dodge. But Paul says, you should remain. That you may charge, verse 3, certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Counter their doctrine, Timothy. Counter them with the truth. Stay there. Even though they're disobedient. Even though they might be mean-spirited. Even though they're not listening to your preaching. Paul says, keep preaching Christ to them. Keep bringing them the Savior. Elsewhere, he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, preach the Word. Why? Because the Gospel is for the weak. It's for the people struggling. It's for the people who are sinful and having a hard time believing. It's for the needy. And he illustrates this with his own life. There may be no better example of the Gospel being for the needy than the Apostle Paul himself. And it's interesting to think of it in this way because, brothers and sisters, other than Jesus Christ, there may not be another man that was on the face of the human earth that was more sanctified than Paul. This is a man who had a vision of Jesus Christ. Who spoke with God. He visited the seventh heaven. He healed people. He spoke in tongues. He lived selflessly for the Gentiles and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To use a Whitfield saying, when Whitfield saying, when we get to heaven, we probably won't see Paul because he'll be so close to the throne of grace. But look how he comforts the hurting pastor. He doesn't say, "Oh yes, those people are so wicked, so sinful, so evil; they don't deserve the gospel." He didn't say, "Get out of there," because it's casting pearls before swine. No, he says, you know who else was a sinner? Me. You see, Paul might be one of the most sanctified men on the face of the earth, ever was on the face of the earth, but Paul is also, as he says, the chief of sinners. So Paul confesses his sins to Timothy and he doesn't choose the easy ones. Look with me. At verse 13, he lays it all out. He says, I was a blasphemer. Blasphemy is the defamation of God's name. Leviticus 24, verse 6 says, If you blaspheme God, you shall surely die. Punishable by death in the Old Testament. Paul's first confession is, I spoke evil of Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, we are told in Acts 26 that he tried to force people to speak evil of Jesus Christ. He was a persecutor. In Acts 8, verse 1, he stood by while Stephen was being stoned and he consented to his death. He says in Acts 8, verse 3, I ravaged the church. I went from house church to house church. I dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He says in Galatians 1.13, I was trying to destroy 
the church. But his third confession is where he really is vulnerable. This is the hardest one to hear. I was insolent. John Stott says what this means is that he found satisfaction and gratification in what he was doing. Not only was he a blasphemer and a persecutor, but he went home at night, laid his head on the pillow, and slept like a baby. He was happy to blaspheme Christ. He was gratified in humiliating the church. What we see here is that Paul owns his own sins, doesn't he? He calls them what they are. These are sins. And doesn't the Heidelberg Catechism seem to allude to this as well in question 29? He saves us from our sins. We have to own our sins. We have to name them for what they are. Don't just confess the little ones, but get to the depth of our hearts. Not only do we confess Not only do we commit sins, but sometimes we do them with smiles on our faces. Insolent in our hearts. The Apostle Paul owns his sins. But listen to this, congregation. You can't get much worse than the Apostle Paul, can you? He was aggressive. He was malicious. Humanly speaking, if the Apostle Paul was alive today, we would say he's a terrorist. He's killing the church by force. You can't get worse than this guy. But look at what he says. But I received mercy, not judgment. Even though he blasphemed God even though Stephen was stoned at his feet, even though he went home satisfied and reveled in his sin, he was not too far from the grace of God. That's what verse 14 is saying. The grace of the Lord overflowed for me. The Greek word for overflow is superabounding. That the faith and the love of Christ. By the faith and love for Christ, he goes from abounding in his sin to super abounding in grace. Because of Christ's faith and love. Christ choosing him. Sometimes people will say, I'm too far gone. To be saved by the grace of Christ. My sins are too evil, too rancid, too dark. But what is he saying here? Timothy, I wasn't too far gone. Therefore, your congregation isn't too far gone. And this congregation here this evening, neither are you too far gone 
from the grace of Christ. But Paul Paul teaches us two things. Here's the application. We need to own our sinfulness. Do you want salvation full and free? Then all you need to do is to beat your breast like the righteous publican who looks into the heavens and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So don't make excuses about your sin. It's not the devil's fault. It's not the culture's fault. It's not the internet's fault. It's not my wife's fault. It's not your husband's fault. Our sins belong to us. But here's the second thing Paul teaches us. We take our sins and we run to Jesus Christ. If God could save the Apostle Paul, a Jewish terrorist against the church, is there not enough grace in Christ for you also? Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, there is grace for you in Christ. The Gospel is for the needy. So the Apostle Paul reflecting on the false teachings of some of the members in the church in verses 3-11 through explains what Timothy should teach. Here we see our second point, deliverance by the Gospel. What should Timothy teach? He says, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Notice what he says first. The Gospel is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The very word in Greek is faithful. The Gospel is faithful even when other people are worshiping false gods, others are teaching myths and genealogies, there are vain spiritual discussions, some were trying to suppose that you're saved by law-keeping, Paul says those things don't save. You know what is faithful? The Gospel. There were many in that congregation who wondered if the Gospel was true. And sometimes we wonder if the Gospel is true as well. Many of you in this room, some, a lot of you were baptized. You've been catechized. Christ is all you've ever known. And you may have the question, is the Gospel true? How do I know the Gospel is true? The Apostle Paul himself, remember, once believed a false Gospel. Paul himself once believed a false gospel. He says in Philippians, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He believed in a salvation by law-keeping. 1 verse 7. 
He believed in His own righteousness. He believed that when He stood before the Lord on that last day, He would be able to beat His own breast and say, God, accept me into heaven because I did it right. Accept me into heaven because I'm a Jew. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. A Pharisee. I deserve heaven, he says in Philippians. But what does he say in the very next line? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He believed a gospel of self-righteousness. He believed he could earn his salvation from the law. He believed in personal perfection. But what did it lead him to? Loss. Rubbish. Rags. Our catechism says it well. Salvation is not to be sought but nor can it be found in anyone else. Don't put your trust in men. Don't put your faith in other gods to trust in saints, to trust in yourself. It's a fool's errand. It's, question 30, a denial of the only Savior Jesus Christ. What is faithful, says Paul, what is worthy of your trust is this saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says that's what you should put your faith in. We can trust in His salvation. At this point in our Heidelberg Catechism, we've reflected much on God's work of providence. We have reflected much on the law, on the nature of faith. There have been many subjects of which we've considered. Only 11 Lord's Days in. But let us consider this question. What is salvation? What is salvation? Salvation is this. That God created men and women, and women good. But due to the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, our natures have been corrupted. We sin because we're sinners. We're born sinners, but God demands a perfect righteousness. But God in His perfect mercy had seen men and women who have laid long in sin and He has been moved to compassion for their sake. And so He sends His Son, His only Son, His perfect Son, who lives a perfect life, yet is rejected by men. He has done nothing wrong, yet He's condemned by Pontius Pilate. He's nailed to the cross. The sins of the world are placed upon Him. He dies upon that cross. He's buried in a barren tomb. And on the third day, He rose again. The good news is this, and He did it for you. Salvation in some is that the life and the death of Christ was for you. And it doesn't matter how sinful you are. You don't have to be perfect to come to Christ. You don't have to be a churchgoer to come to Christ. 
All you need to bring is your sins. Isn't that what he says? Of whom I am the foremost. He personalizes the gospel. Christ did not come for sins in abstract or, for, or to be some pie in the sky moral philosopher. He came to save people. He came for the names that the Father had given him. He came for Paul. He came for me. He came for you. Is the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart this evening? Saying, He came for you. He died for you. If so, embrace Christ today. There is deliverance in the Gospel. He has broken the chains of sin, death, and hell. He has saved us from the power of sin. But let us not forget, He saves us to God. From sin and to God. Well, this evening, there may be some cynics in the crowd who might say, well, that's all well and good for you. But I have my own God. I have my own way to salvation. My own path to heaven. What we want to see in our final point this evening, the exclusiveness of the Gospel. I want to urge you to reconsider that thought. Our final point this evening is regarding the exclusiveness. The question in question 30 is this. Do those who look for their salvation and security in saints in themselves or elsewhere really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? The Apostle Paul has given us his testimony. He has sought salvation in himself. He has sought salvation in the law. If we ask the Apostle Paul this question, what do you think he would say? I think he would agree with the catechism that in Christ we have all that we need for salvation. You know, when we consider the salvation, the conversion of the Apostle Paul, there's only one instance after the Lord Jesus dies upon the cross and he welcomes the thief on the cross into heaven. There's only one other instance after that where the Lord personally comes to somebody and saves them. And he does that with the Apostle Paul. Paul's conversion in the New Testament is unique because it is holy of Christ. There wasn't even another preacher. There wasn't even another person. But as he was going house to house, blaspheming and persecuting. Jesus appears to him and says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then the Lord led Ananias to him, who laid his hands on Saul. And Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he was baptized from start to finish. Saul's conversion to Paul was purely a work 
of God's grace. Saul couldn't take the credit. Ananias couldn't take the credit. So when Paul says in verse 16 of 1 Timothy 1 that Jesus saved him so he could display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe. We are supposed to see in Paul someone's salvation who is holy of grace as the example of how we are saved as well. We are saved holy of grace. Should Christ by faith be your Savior, you have all you need in Him just as Paul did. And so the Apostle Paul in meditating on his salvation, even though he was the chief of sinners, who had been chosen for eternal life, and not only that, chosen to be the instrument of salvation to the Gentiles, in reflecting on this, he praises God. Verse 17, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory or be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. His salvation led him to praising God. Even though he lived a contemptible life before he knew Christ, and he had been saved by grace, now he lifts up his hands and he praises God. He's saved in Christ. Even though he was worthy of hell, he's going to heaven. Because of Jesus. He will be in heaven for all of eternity praising Christ. He rejoices in His Savior. And the Savior is not Himself. It's not good works. It's not the law. Paul says the only Savior who can deliver from all evil is Jesus Christ the Lord. Remember this evening that there is no sinner too far gone for the long arm of Christ to not reach in and save. Amen. Let us pray. Merciful Father, we give You thanks this evening that salvation is for sinners. That You have been pleased to send Your Son to save a sinner like Paul to save a sinner like us. Father, we pray that You would soften our hearts to the Gospel and remind us, Lord, that through this Gospel we have salvation. There isn't salvation in anything else. We cannot seek it, nor can we find it in ourselves, in our righteousness and perfection. But yet, Lord, You have made it clear that it's in Your Son. Point our eyes to Him by the power of Your Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.